welcome to In The Rising Podcast. My name is Bettina Brown, and this is the platform I've chosen to talk about living a life that's in alignment with your hopes, your dreams, and your goals, and walking away from the shame and blame. And my guest today is Wendy Sanford, the author of The Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class. And in this book, she really highlights the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and how her entire perspective was from the generation before and, of course, the generation before that. In an era when we are looking for inclusivity and trying to open up diversity, we also know that um, things are not always the way we want them to be, right? We're sometimes just as far back as we were. But she shares her insight, and I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Well, thank you for your time, Ms. Sanford. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bettina. I'm very glad to be here. All right. So I wanted to get right to the gist of it because you wrote um, a phenomenal book, These Walls Between Us, A Memoir of Friendship Across Race and Class. And I found it powerful um, because I myself am biracial. So I am white. I am black or African-American, how some people refer to it. And um, I felt the, the conflict from both. And so it was really um, an eye-opening experience also from both sides because I, I kind of have both in one person, right? So this was really a great book. Um, and thank you so much for your time. So you, you wrote this with your friend. Share a little bit how this book came into origin, how it came to birth. Okay. Well, I have to start back when Mary Norman uh, was uh, 15 years old and I was 12. And I won't take forever, but it's got to go back there because my family, my upper middle class white family went on a vacation uh, in the, the summer of 1956. And uh, my mother hired a young black woman uh, to come be her helper, really her domestic worker for that time. And that was Mary. She came all the way up from Virginia, rural Virginia, in what was really uh, one of the late waves of the Great Migration. She came up, her aunt had gotten her the job, her aunt lived in New Jersey, her aunt helped housed her while she did the long trip. And she finally made it to the coast, the very, very white coast of Massachusetts, uh, an area of Massachusetts that was um, just all kind of upper, upper middle class white people. And she was 15 years old going on 16. And she was to do all the hard work in the family while we had vacation. And I was 12. So I it wasn't like I was her, I was uh, a baby that she was taking care of, but still her job involved studying what I liked and finding out what I liked and what I wanted to do and what my parents liked. And I was not encouraged as a young white girl at that time to be very curious about her. Uh, you know, I, I grew up with this, these illusions of white superiority that I picked up from my family, from watching TV, from anything, you know, at that time in the in the 50s. And um, so uh, I think we were friendly, but she really learned much more about me than I ever learned about her for a long, long time. And then other things. And she came back every summer just about because my she did such a good job. 
And my parents thought they just couldn't have a good vacation without Mary being there. And she, so she supplemented her income of her regular job for years and years and years doing that job. And so we would see each other every summer. And as we both changed in life, uh, we both got married, got divorced, were single parents. She had a, her own career in um, uh, corrections as she was leading the way for women in, the corre- in corrections in New Jersey as the first woman officer. Um, in the, in the Mercer County, New Jersey. And, um, I was becoming a feminist activist and thinking about women's lives. And, um, uh, and then as I started getting some feedback as a white feminist, that white feminists were just acting like we were leading the whole movement and we were the, we were the big story and that we could say, we think this and we think that. And, speak for all women. And it was a, a rude awakening uh, and a really important awakening with a cr- criticism from Black uh, health activists that we were focusing on issues that were important, but that were completely leaving out some of the key health issues for, for Black women, for instance. So I started on a mission of reading everything I could about and by Black women because my education to that point had been all white people. I majored in English, so I read all books by white men, Uh, uh, mostly upper-class white men at the time. This was was in the 50s and 60s. Um, So we started, Mary and I started walking the beach together and talking about our lives. And you can imagine we couldn't do it during the daytime because it was a very elite beach and she had to be in her uniform and her little white uniform to go on the beach and to be serving people. So we started walking at night uh, and talking about our lives. And that's how we started to become friends. And the story so doesn't stop there because a lot of what I'd learned as a white person and a lot of the <clears throat> racist ways of thinking and the ignorance about Mary's life really affected our friendship and affected some things I did and said in the friendship that ended up hurtful microaggressions that I wasn't even aware of. So as I kept learning, uh, at, we kept telling each other more of the truth. That's how I see it. Um, and when I became a lesbian, I, um, I didn't want to, t- I didn't tell her at first for a whole year, although she knew the, she knew immediately. I mean, the, the level of um, uh, perceptiveness that she had to draw on working for this fam- for a white family uh, uh, was so powerful. She just knew I was in love with this woman I kept talking about. And she didn't want me to tell my parents because it would have been pretty bad for me if, if I did. But when I finally told her, she said, I knew that a year ago. <laughs> so she, she really knew you because her survival and her, like her summer jobs, like the return was also dependent on her being very perceptive and yours exactly. was not at that exactly. time. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Bettina. You wrote this in in the book. You said, and I'm going to quote, my parents valued Mary's invisibility, her gift for doing her work without drawing notice to herself. They would have said that they saw her as a human being, but they wanted her like furniture to be invisible. 
when you hear that now and you have this conversation or any conversation with Mary or any person of color, how does that make you feel like we've evolved or have we really evolved? As a human race, you mean? <laughs> yes. Um, that's, you know, that's a question for the ages. I, I, I can say, I hope I've evolved. It's been a long study and I still do read mostly works by by people of color. And that's partly so I don't ask my black friends to teach me because that's a burden they don't need. Um, and uh, I think I'm much more aware now that there's a whole life, that person's in a whole life that's been affected by um, some of the things that have given me uh, comfort. Uh, and so uh not to, to bring guiltiness in, but to bring awareness in and to understand that we haven't been moving on a level playing field, on the same playing field. Uh, so, and uh, have we evolved as a hu human beings or as, as you people in the U.S. around that? Um, oh, I'd love to say we have, and I think some areas have, but you look at, I'm just I'm so upset by the return of Haitian immigrants to uh, migrants to, back to a country that's so torn by um, earthquake and storm and flood and, um, you know, or the, uh, the continuing killings of, of black people by uh, police who shouldn't even have guns as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, uh, have we progressed maybe some individuals on an individual basis? There's a whole lot of work that the country has to do. And I felt that as a white person, what I, what I could do is be as transparent as I could about my own errors of understanding and judgment uh, so that white people might read the book and talk about it and think, oh, I've done that same thing. Let's think about this or let's talk about it in our family or let's you know, um, start some of that deep change that's needed. And I really enjoyed that you talked about your family's history as well. Like you described that your family, and I don't remember who it was, was a Riker in the New Amsterdam. And I thought, wait a minute, wasn't that New York? And I'm like, Riker's Island? Like that was somehow in yep. your family? And to just think that that was your background, you you were unconsciously in this place of not knowing it was not necessarily intentional, but that was how you were raised. But now you made a conscious decision to learn more. And that exactly. is what everyone. Yes. Yeah. 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 You in several places in the book, you describe yourself, you describe a situation. You say later, I realize later. I think about later. I see I know you described earlier how people were telling you, hey, your, your view is a little bit different, but when was later like a gentle gradual or was it really just like a pow for you one time? I'm like, wow. So there were so many moments like that. And that's why the book took so long to write. <laughs> but there was one moment that that I that is very important for me to remember, which is in my reading uh, in and I was, this is around the time I was in my forties, I was in um, seminary and I, I read and studied and really worked hard to understand a book by a woman named Ann Moody, African-American woman uh, who grew up in Mississippi. Her book is called coming of age in Mississippi. 
And it was a real eye-opener to me about sharecropping, about Jim Crow, and about the um, survival of this young woman, uh, partly by writing about it and partly by becoming an activist. And uh, I, I gave... I was reading it and I mentioned it to Mary and she said she'd like to read it. So I, I lent her my copy and she stayed up all night reading it. And the next morning I said, what did you think of the book? And she looked at me and she said, Wendy, that was my life. And that was the moment that you just mentioned that of just everything opened up to me. I thought, oh my God, if Ann Moody's life in Mississippi was Mary's life, I think of her as my friend and I do not know her at all. So that was, you know, that was one step that was really important. And you described too that uh, in a certain areas where she just seems like she has this, she, um, where Mary just gives a little sentence, but holds back a little sentence, like a little glimmer, but she understands what you don't understand. Did you feel that she was always like welcoming to, slowly teach you and show you at your learning pace? Uh, so I do think we started talking more of the truth to each other, but it was very slow. And it, and in fact, uh, she once told me to stop walking on eggshells. If I kept, if I did, if I kept walking on eggshells around her, around racial issues, she wouldn't be able to talk to me the way she did. That was like 40 years ago. Just last year, we were talking, we, we text a lot. So that's, that's how we communicate a lot right now. And, um, uh, and she texted, uh, we were talking about how I used to think she was workaholic because she worked three jobs. I had no idea what it's like to be a working class person who one job isn't enough, particularly if you want to try to own your own home, uh, if you're black and the housing, you know, the um, bank is charging you higher uh, mortgage fees than they're charging white people because of where you live, um, you you need to work three jobs. And, it, and the fact that I thought she was workaholic is just shows how little I knew at the time. So I used to say, please just give up one of those jobs. You're harming your health, blah, blah, blah. And so we were talking about this very recently. And she said, um, I knew how much you didn't know. I knew that you didn't understand. She said, and I actually had to walk on eggshells around you too. So here we are full circle. She had asked me not to walk on eggshells and then finally let me know there was so much of her life she didn't tell me because I wouldn't have heard it right. I wouldn't have heard it. I wouldn't have let it in. And now, so when I say that we, we tell each other more of the truth, that's a huge thing to say for me, that we tell each other more of our truth. It stands to both your characters that, that you're able to live in your truth and be open to one another instead of having the fists up, basically metaphorically mm -hmm. of your different color, but to allow those walls to come down and yeah, have that. Yes. That speaks a lot to yeah. you. Yeah. And you described even a moment where it's not just a racial book, it's also classes, things that we don't talk about in the United States, class structure. Mm -hmm. And I think you the story was that your mom 
was kind of shocked that Mary didn't have money a day or two before <laughs> paying. And, and, and it's something that's very familiar to me of that has happened in my life. But the way you describe her shock, because for some people that is a shock to not have money at any day of the week to that they'll right. forget about a payday. And there are others that they think about payday the next payday, right? You know, they're already thinking, you know, exactly. I, I they're already calculating yes. what's going on. So they already think that the class structure so far as socioeconomic status was also highlighted in this book, not just race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, uh, at least in the context of this story, uh, I couldn't talk about one without the other. also said about feminism that you had your child and you were having some postpartum depression mm-hmm. feeling a little sad and you you talked to your doctor and um, <laughs> you're, and you're after your son Matthew was born and he the doctor told you not to expect too much from your husband that he was busy from work and that that you know you needed to move on but this is your quote you said that a nuclear family was a lonely place for mothers mm-hmm. that there wasn't always that support how did you feel like you were finally able to gain some support from where you describe where you were at that time to now, you know, an activist and, and, you know, feminist author, how do you feel you were able to find that support? It has a lot to do with my friend Esther, who uh, started going to this women's group uh, that were talking about women's bodies. And she thought it would be good for me because I was so depressed to come and just be with a women's group and learn about childbirth and sexuality and all those things. And she told me to go and I didn't go because if you're depressed, you usually don't go do something that would be good for you. So the next day she picked me up and took me there. And um, I walked into a room full of women, white, as I didn't notice at the time, they were all white, but we were all white. And um, some were nursing babies, et cetera. And they were talking about sex and they were using words out loud that I had never, ever even whispered about women's bodies. And um, uh, I was very quiet and listened, listened, listened. And then we broke down into small groups, which is a pedagogy I didn't even know yet, uh, which is a great pedagogy. And I went into my small group and there were a lot of mothers of small children there. And we did talk about sex for a while. We talked about um, women's orgasm and and uh, how to teach your partner what pleased you, but they didn't really want to learn because if he was a male partner, he really felt he should know everything already. You know, we talked about all that, um, which I hope has changed, but you never know because um, this was 1960, 1970. Um, and uh, then they started talking about postpartum depression and two or three women in the group had had postpartum depression and started to study it a bit. And I learned that night that what I was experiencing wasn't my fault, that there were reasons for it, that the nuclear family was pretty lonely for women and uh, probably for men too, but for me, and um, that there were physical reasons and societal reasons. And one woman said, I'm studying up on it so that I can be sure that other women don't go through what I went through. And that is the women's health movement in a nutshell. And it just, I felt such relief that I stayed with the women's health movement for the next rest of my life. So that's, I think, what helped me come out of isolation. And I was so lucky. You have so much to offer. The last question I'm going to ask is what 
What are your goals or intentions with this book and your story? What would you like to, what, what is the impact or legacy you would like to leave? Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, Mary and I have talked about that a lot. Um, and uh, I think that we hope that um, people of color who read it uh, find that it's authentic and honest and accurate. And we hope that white people who read it will start thinking about their own lives and just say, one friend of mine said, oh, my heavens, I did so many of those things, too. You know, a friend who read it. Um, and we'll, I hope that white people will buy it, will talk with each other, will take it to a book club and talk about it and bring their own lives to it and um, see the ways they've been carrying obstacles within them that they didn't even know about. Uh, to interracial friendship and um, to working for justice. I hope that some activism will come out of it also. What an inspiring story that Wendy Sanford had to share. And also her friend, Mary, you know, these are women that lived and grew up in a different time than me, but still shared their experiences. They were a product of their experiences as much as we are a product of ours, but that does not mean we don't have the option and the responsibility to open our own eyes and adjust our behavior. So if you found this podcast riveting and worthwhile, go ahead and share it um, or also leave a five-star review. It does so much for the podcast and it helps put it in the hands and the ears of those that will benefit from it. And until next time, let's keep building one another up.